0: Time to check in with Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined by Andy Brown, Editorial Director for the Bloomberg New Economy. So, Andy, let's trade is right back on the front burner for the markets, given President Trump's tweet yesterday. Just give us your sense of kind of what we've experienced so far with the tariffs. Are the tariffs working? Is it advancing our trade goals, do you believe? No, they're not working. So
2: what we're learning... We just heard from Larry Kudlow that they were working. Right. Well, if they were working, China would have bent by now. And China has not budged at all. In fact, what we're hearing is that China didn't make any additional offers at all uh, in the latest round of talks. And this latest 10% threatened 10% tariffs on $300 billion will have about as much effect as the last bunch of tariffs on $250 billion. Trump is a, is a one-trick pony. It's tariffs or tariffs or tariffs. He's tariff man, and he's doubling down on them.
1: So I, I guess that I want to just offer up the other view to this. People would say that it has been working, that China's economy has slowed more than people would have otherwise predicted based on the tariffs and that they've had to engage in further stimulus to counteract that, which leaves them with less ammunition to counter their slowdown going forward. I mean, what do you say to those arguments?
2: Well, I would say is look at the Chinese economy. Sure, the the economy is slowing. It probably would have slowed anyway. It it needed to slow. Um, I would also say look at the resilience of the Chinese his economy And there's a lot more that they can do. They can cut interest rates. They can ramp up lending. They can offer support to small, medium-sized enterprises, the ones that are going to be hurt by this latest round of tariffs. They've got plenty of ammunition left. But more to the point, they're just not going to bend to Trump's will. So right now, the entire Chinese leadership has decamped for the summer to Beidaihe, this seaside resort near Beijing, to talk about strategy. You can guarantee that this is going to be right at the top of their agenda. Can you imagine At this point, a conversation, Xi Jinping standing up and saying to this group, "Okay, guys, the game is up, right? We don't have any option. We're just going to have to force ourselves to undertake really painful adjustments to our economy, which Trump is demanding, even though we think this is going to be a really bad idea and could be and could be damaging. And then, by the way, we're going to have to explain this historic capitulation to the Chinese people won't
0: happen. So you mentioned that you recently came back from Hong Kong. So do you have a sense, I'm guessing, you know, spending time over in that part of the world, do you have a sense of what the Chinese really want in a deal, realistically what they want and that they think they can actually get?
2: Well, the the you know, the the, the Hong Kong the Hong Kong situation is now aggravating everything else. Right. So what you're hearing, the rhetoric you're hearing from the Chinese propaganda outlets is that the American black hands are behind this protest. And by the way, Trump very unhelpfully yesterday picked up all kinds of Chinese Communist Party talking points describing these protests in Hong Kong where 2 million people took to the streets against this extradition law as riots. And he said, basically, it's nothing to do with us. China can fix it. Hong Kong is a part of China Uh, and, and, and so on. The worst possible thing he could have said at this point.
1: So uh, we're now getting a sense that China does plan to retaliate against any additional tariffs that President Trump does implement them. What do you expect in terms of how that retaliation will look?
2: Yeah, well, you see, they can't really retaliate in kind because they've run out of goods to Put tariffs on America just doesn't sell enough stuff to China. So what we can expect is uh, American companies to take a hit. Look at look at the Boeing share price, right? They're they're in the middle now of or the end stages of negotiating a huge fleet sale to the Chinese. Don't hold your breath. I mean, you know, uh, I can't see that being signed. Under the present circumstances, companies like FedEx, for instance, which are already in hot water for mishandling this package that was supposed to have been sent to Huawei, maybe maybe they come maybe they roll out their so-called unreliable entities list, essentially a hit list of American companies. FedEx may well be on such a list. Uh, f- forget about uh, uh, purchases of oil seeds, grains, cottons. China had just started to buy a bit of that. That won't be happening either. So you know, and just generally make life really miserable for American companies and there's a lot they can do without formal sanctions
1: I'm just looking right now at some of the the share prices and the commodities that you're mentioning interestingly Boeing shares are slightly up soybean prices are slightly up so either markets are not taking this seriously or people think that this has already been priced in
2: well, I, I mean, you know, these prices are up and down. Boeing took Boeing. Boeing took a hit yesterday on the news. I mean, news.
1: Boeing's been its uh, own, ex, you know, world of hurt.
2: Sure. I'm, look, I, 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 I mean. China will have to respond in some fashion, and and you know since they since they honestly can't, since they, they cannot even they, if they wanted to put on more tariffs, I think these direct threats to individual U.S. companies to make them feel the pain is probably what we should expect.
1: You can read more on uh, all of these things and other stories from Bloomberg Opinion at bloomberg slash opinion. Uh, Andy Brown, thank you so much for being with us. have been getting earnings out of the big uh, gas giants, I guess you would say. Uh, I know, Paul, you're giving me a look. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, between uh, the solar system studying in my home household and uh, the <laughs> right. fact that I have two young boys, that's, that's where my mind goes. I, I do want to talk, though, uh, more broadly about what's going on in oil because it's been, frankly, a wild ride. And to help us parse through not only the earnings from uh, Chevron and Exxon and others, but also what we're seeing in the crude market as John killed founding partner of, again, Capital, joining us on the phone. John, let's just start with the wild ride. Yesterday, we saw the biggest plunge in crude in four years, uh, dropping about 8%. Today, you're seeing a bit of a rebound. How much would additional tariffs really crimp the value of oil?
3: First of all, good morning, uh, but the, <clears throat> very much. I mean, I've been saying for a while that the the U.S.-China trade war has had an outsized effect uh, on the oil market on energy pricing, because it's been hitting the Asian economic region, Japan, South Korea, China, Singapore, Indonesia, uh, the hardest. And the slowing economic activity there, every measure that comes out, manufacturing, PMIs, GDPs, exports, you name it, all have been really on on a terrific downslope. And that's, goes to the heart of the energy demand growth outlook. It's been hollowed out uh, to a great degree uh, by this economic slowing. So uh, you want to ratchet up the trade war more, it's going to ratchet down demand growth more, and that's why you're seeing these prices come under such pressure.
0: And, John, I, you know, we've all seen, I think, um, reports that Iranian oil tankers have been quietly offloading their supply into Chinese ports, that seems like a risky strategy for the Chinese.
3: What do you think is going on there? It's actually um, they're being quite clever about it, Paul. They're, they're, what they're doing is the the Iranian tankers, not to get too technical here, are unloading the oil into what they call bonded storage or storage facilities that are actually owned by Iran, so it doesn't count yet as an actual transfer or transaction that would be that would be violative of the U.S. sanctions. But what that's doing uh, is creating this huge overhang of millions of barrels of oil, literally, that if there's some kind of easing or if the Chinese want to throw down and say, you know, we don't care about your sanctions, we're going to buy the oil, all of a sudden we have a new flood of oil that goes into the Chinese market, uh, which would displace, obviously, other Saudi barrels and and other supply that would, uh, again, cause a potential you know, further cratering of the price. So um, it's actually something we're all watching because it's oil, it's almost – like a a mini strategic petroleum reserve that it's being built up into, that if it gets tapped or called on, Uh, would obviously be another uh, price break opportunity.
1: So, John, uh, you've nailed it with respect to your calls on oil prices. I'm looking right now. Uh, Crude traded on the NYMAX, uh, currently trading at $55.32 a barrel, up 2.5% today after yesterday's 8% plunge. Where will this price be? What should it be? Should the tariffs, the additional tariffs that President Trump discussed yesterday, get implemented and there is some sort of retaliatory move by the Chinese government?
3: You know we're heading back down towards $50 a barrel at this point. Uh, that's where major support is on the, on the chart. It's not just around psychological number. There's some real, um, you know, math, if you will, uh, involved with that with that level. Um, and it's remarkable, right, if you think about it, that with all the tensions surrounding Iran. Uh, with all the efforts by Saudi Arabia and some others in OPEC, including Russia, to try to re, you know reduce supplies and get the price back up, that it's just not reacting. It shows you just how um, you know deleterious this situation is, and the fallout from the trade war is uh, on on the demand outlook, and that's what's just key right now. And and uh, you know we're we're going to be heading down uh, to that $50 a barrel level, and we'll see if that doesn't prompt another response from the Saudis or the rest of OPEC and Russia. Um, or even the other shoe that could fall here, what we're going to, have to start to watch out for, is our own shale players. Um, the, they're hearing footsteps from the financial markets about, uh, you know, persisting in their money-losing endeavors here. And uh, we've seen U.S. domestic production stall out at about 12 million barrels. It could very well start to go back on the decline uh, if this doesn't improve. So that's the other thing to watch out for.
0: So, John, uh, just real quickly in 30 seconds, um, we heard from uh, Chevron and Exxon reported uh, earnings today. What are the big oil companies saying about trade and how that risks uh, their business?
3: Well, it's, it's a problem for them. The only bright spot they've had recently is their petrochemical businesses at the bigger companies, Exxon, Chevron, and some of the others. Now that's going to face an economic slowdown, and those businesses are highly cyclical. So if you get a downturn in the global economy, that's, the, that's their last vestige that's now going to get hit too. So there's a reason why the energy sector is less than 5% of the S&P 500. Um, they're they're really uninvestable at this point. Uninvestable, that's hard. Yeah, because they <laughs> both beat
1: expectations yep, and, and both their are- share prices are down. So I think a lot of people probably agree with John. Yep,
0: absolutely. Uh, John Kilduff, thank you so much for joining us once again. John is founding partner of Again Capital based in New York City, giving us uh, an update on the oil markets. Well, this may be the dog days of summer, but we certainly had a busy week this week. We had the Fed, we had trade and tariffs, and uh, today the jobs report. So we actually had plenty for the markets to digest to help us kind of tie it all together, we welcome Dr. Bob Eisenbeis. Uh, Bob is a vice chairman and chief monetary economist for Cumberland Advisors. And uh, Dr. Eisenbeis was formerly executive vice president and director of research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. He joins us on the phone from Sarasota. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. Let's kind of work backwards maybe from what has been a very busy week. And we'll start with the jobs report that we uh, got this morning. What are your key takeaways from what seemed to be a pretty solid report?
4: Well, it was a solid report, and there's lots of positives. The unemployment rate held constant at 3.7%. There were gains in a number of different categories. And uh, I noticed that those categories aren't necessarily the ones that are low-paying jobs. We're not seeing retail and food services and and that sort of thing. We're seeing good jobs being created. Um, And then I also note the fact that uh, we now have about 6.1 million uh people unemployed whereas we have over 7 million job vacancies so if you're an employer and you have a job and you have a job vacancy and you can't hire people why would you create more jobs the only thing i can think of is that you may be creating jobs that have different skills and so part of what we're looking at is a skill m- mismatch
1: so Bob, given the fact that the jobs market looks like it's in very solid footing, uh, given the fact that the economic expansion, albeit is slowing, it is still uh, chugging along here, how does the Federal Reserve Act going forward from your perspective?
4: Well, they painted themselves into a corner as far as I'm concerned. Um, They cut once, billed it as an insurance cut. Uh, I saw some commentator make the point that when you don't have another rationale, you can always bill it as an insurance cut. Uh, they were not very convincing as to why they were doing it, especially, uh, I'd make, make two points. First, if the problems are slowdown in Europe and trade issues, it's not obvious to me how a cut in interest rates is going to solve those dislocations. It's not. Uh, so I think I think that's one of the things to sort of uh, put in the back of our mind that it's just not, there's not much of a connection between at this juncture, the problems they're trying to address and the tools that they have to address it. Secondly, uh, Chairman Powell kept referring to uncertainty about trade, uncertainty about the global outlook. Well, to an economist, uncertainty has a special meeting. it means that you don 't have an idea as to what the probabilities are going to be of an event occurring that 's different from risk where you do have some way of figuring out what the likelihood of these events i don 't know of a single theory that says that policy monetary policy helps to deal with uncertainty so i think I think they 've really painted themselves into a corner, and I guessed right. before the meeting that should they make a cut two things will happen they will be criticized by the president and the markets will be crying for more and that that's appears to be yep. what's happening so well,
0: it's interesting uh, it's interesting bob this week again a pretty busy week in terms of uh, data for the marketplace we had uh, a good jobs report today we had you know a good uh, we had a rate cut by the federal reserve but The sell-off we've seen in the financial markets yesterday afternoon and continuing in today, and we have the Dow off 287 points right now, it shows where trade really fits on investors' radar screen, i.e. kind of right up front and center. So what is your sense as to how investors should be pricing in the risk of a prolonged trade dispute with China?
4: Well, I think, uh, first of all, uh, what that means is trade is not all that important to us in terms of the volume of trade, our exports and imports, most of our trade is with Mexico and Canada. So you need to keep our eyes on what's happening in that arena as opposed to necessarily worrying about the goods coming in and out of China. Um, We've also seen suppliers now moving supply chains to adjust to it. So they're taking steps to try to cushion themselves from the impact of those trade Wars, but I did find it very interesting listening to the broadcast today. The number of different knock-on effects that people have been identified that fall out of these trade negotiations, and I think in this particular case, uh, those that are arguing that the Chinese are in no rush to to strike a deal is going to be really important because the longer we go, the closer we get to the election. If there's a downturn in flows of funds to farmers and so on in the Midwest that's going to have significant political implications uh, going forward. Uh, I'd like to make one more point about the jobs market, if I could. Go ahead. Okay. Um, we tend to look at the number of jobs created uh, as we assess how good the job market is. But we forget that the economy today is much bigger than it was in 2000. It's bigger than it was in 1960. If we were to create jobs at the same rate we did between 1960 and 1970, that 165,000 would be four times what it is. If we were to create jobs at the same rate we did between 1980 and before the financial crisis, that number would be twice as big. So while this is a nice job number, we need to sort of put it in perspective that tells us something's going on in terms of the job creation and the nature of how our economy is going and growing Yeah, that's, uh, that that's that has implications for jobs.
1: That's that's an excellent point. Uh, Bob Eisenbeis, thank you so much for being with us and giving us your perspective. Bob Eisenbeis is vice chairman and chief monetary economist for Cumberland Advisors. Joining us from Sarasota, formerly was the executive vice president and director of research at the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Kara Kadana of Bloomberg Economics, chief U.S. economist, was in here earlier saying that the uh, the actual numbers of the jobs report today looked pretty good. You dig under that, though, uh, perhaps they looked a little less good. And to get us a color, uh, some color of what's happening on the ground, let's bring in Becky Frankowitz, president of Manpower Group, North America. Manpower Group is the third largest staffing firm in the world. Becky, thank you so much for joining us. So I want to start there. Are there signs from your vantage point that the U.S. labor market is slowing down.
5: Yeah, so we would say that J- July's job report was pitch perfect. There were wage there was wage growth, workforce participation ticked up, and there were strong job gains. Now the pace of growth is slowing. So year to date in 2018, we had about 223,000 jobs this time, and now we're having about 165,000 on average per month. So the pace of growth is slowing, but it makes so much sense, Lisa, because as we have fewer qualified workers looking for work because they're all employed, of course, we're seeing slower job growth.
0: So, Becky, given that uh, we are at or near uh, someone's uh, definition of full employment, are you surprised that we're not seeing maybe better than three, low 3% wage growth?
5: Yeah, so July marked 12 months of 3% or greater wage growth. So we're encouraged by that. But of course, you know, the basics of economics would tell you we should continue to see wages pick up
1: based on supply and demand. So, and this is something that we have been expecting for a long time and it's been a little bit uh, slower to, to take off than people have expected. Where are the main job gains? I mean, in what industries?
5: Yeah, so really encouraging in July, we saw professional and technical services add 31,000 jobs, and about a third of those jobs were in computer systems designs. And so we're actually starting to see these, the effects of AI and automation come into new jobs in the workforce, which speaks to the fact that we have to start upskilling American workers. Now, again, encouraging that we've seen more companies commit to upskilling, so teaching you know, people new, new skills for future jobs. We've seen more companies commit in the last two months than we've seen in the last two years. But upskilling our workers for tomorrow's jobs is mission critical for our country.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That's kind of where I wanted to go because Lisa and I speak to a lot of uh, C-suite people and they tell us one of their challenges is actually finding qualified workers. What do you think, what what are we seeing out of corporate America in terms of trying to address what is, I guess, a high class problem that you can't find enough qualified workers?
5: Yeah, so I think I think it's actually a problem across all sectors of the economy, Paul. So you know what we're seeing as I spend my time with CEOs across America like you do is you're right. Almost 50% of American employers are saying they can't find the skills that they need. And so we have to create the workforce that we need for tomorrow. Our population growth in our country hit a 32-year low in, in um, earlier this year, March of this year. And the challenge with that is the workforce we have is the workforce we'll have. And so we are seeing companies commit to upskilling, but that's just one piece of what's required for success. To have successful upskilling, we actually have to understand the potential of our workers, understand the jobs that we're going to need today and tomorrow, and then map people through career paths into those jobs.
1: Which industries are offering the biggest pay gains right now? Yeah,
5: so again, encouraged this morning, you know, retail jobs were down about 3.6 or 3,600, but we saw manufacturing increase. So that's exciting. Um, And the positive of that is manufacturing jobs pay a little bit more than retail. So good to see growth there. You know, construction was up. But we're honestly we're seeing growth across the economy with the supply and demand we have in our country. um, It's a great time to be an American worker.
0: So, Becky, one of the things that uh, one of the uncertainties in the marketplace is back kind of front and center, and that's uh, trade tensions with China. Uh, President Trump uh, tweeting that uh, raising uh, tariffs or putting tariffs on additional $300 billion worth of goods. As you talk to hiring managers, are the trade uncertainties impacting their confidence as it relates to hiring or expanding?
5: Yeah, I would say, of course, it's a topic of conversation, but we're not seeing that pull through into action. Despite the uncertainty around trade, Americans are you know, increasingly positive in this plus job market, and so are employers. And so we're continuing to see demand increase for qualified workers. And yes, of course, the conversation is concern over trade, but it is not translating into a slowdown of hiring.
1: Okay, this is really really interesting. So it's not contributing to a slowdown in hiring. What are you hearing from businesses in terms of when it will? Or in other words, when they will start to pare back how much they commit to future businesses based on concerns or the reality of ongoing trade tensions?
5: Yeah, we're seeing a wait-and-see approach, honestly, where companies are saying, hey, we're going to continue to – because the fear is if I don't put my job request out there – I might miss an opportunity for a worker that would be willing to switch to my company. And so wait and see in terms of of talking about trade but not changing behavior, but continuing to post jobs. In fact, we do at Manpower Group, a Manpower Employment Outlook survey, and candidly, for Q3, we saw a 10-year high in intention to hire in our U.S. economy. So people still intend to hire, even with that uncertainty.
0: So, Becky, looking at you, you think about your survey work or just discussions with um, hiring managers, are you seeing geographic particular areas of strength and our weakness in the U.S.?
5: And we're, you know, of course, there's, there's variety across the cities, but we're seeing a lot of strength across all four areas of the country, whether it's, you know, north, south, west, or east. Um, and so continue to see opportunity regardless of where you live in the country. You know, the other interesting thing about today's job reports is, you know, I mentioned we saw workforce participation tick up. The total labor force set a record high. And so, again, there are jobs geographically across the country, and we saw 370,000 new workers come into the labor force. I I did some math this morning. That's like the entire city of Tampa, Florida, coming into the workforce in one month.
0: Becky Frankwitz, thank you so much for joining us on this Jobs Friday. Becky is the president of Manpower Group North America, based in Chicago.